Well, today we're going to continue a conversation that we started last week about what it means to gather here at Rio. And uh, by gathering, if you missed it, what we're talking about is what we do on Sunday mornings. So we're talking about corporate worship. We're talking about what it is that you and I are doing right now. And last week we started with sort of a foundational principle that if you don't get, you're really going to kind of miss a whole lot of the conversation going forward. And the foundational principle is simply that gathering is about God. It's not mostly about God. It's not sometimes about God. It's not occasionally about God. It's not 99.99% about God and the other 0.01% about me or about you or about anyone or anything else. Gathering is 100% about God. And we spent a whole lot of time last week working through all kinds of the implications of that. And I'm so glad to see so many of you at 9 o'clock. So, all right. But that's just one little piece, isn't it? One of the things that we said last week is that the bottom line walk away question from every worship service is not what did I think of it? It's not. Did I like it? Did I not like it? Was it too bright? Was it too dark? Was it too hot? Was it too cold? Was it too short? Was it too long? Was the music too loud? Was the music too soft? Did I like the kind of music? Did I not like the kind of music? Am I glad I came? Do I wish I had stayed home or went somewhere else? And I am not saying that we're not concerned about those things, but we're concerned about them precisely because worship is about God. And therefore, we strive to do it with the greatest degree of excellence and impact that we possibly can. But it's about God, and it's not about me, and it's not about you. It's not like going to the movies. You go to the movies, you pay $8.50 for your ticket, another 100 for your popcorn and your drink. You go, you sit down, you know, you're there with your friend or your husband, your wife, whoever. The movie ends, you get back in your car, you drive away, and what do you talk about? You talk about the movie. What did you think? Well, I thought it was too long. I thought it was too short. It was freezing. It was too loud. I stuffed napkins in my ears in that movie theater. I thought that guy played that role really well. I thought he was poorly cast. And then there was that thing that happened in the middle of the movie. What was that? I don't even know what that was about. That made no sense to me. And did you follow the storyline? And did Do that at the movies. Don't do that here. The question at the end of every worship service is not, hey, what did I think of it? What did you think of it? The question is, hey, God, what did you think of my worship today? Because God is the spectator, and you and I are the actors. You and I are the performers. You and I are performers of worship here when we gather for an audience of exactly one. So gathering is about God. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're talking about the fact that gathering tells God's story. And what is the story of God? Well, the story of God is the story of redemption, or to make it just even more clear, I hope, the story of God is the gospel. And so what I'm trying to get communicated to you today is that when we gather here, what we gather to do is patterned after the progress of the gospel in the heart of the believer. It is a retelling. It is a replaying. It is a reenacting. It is even a reliving of the gospel. The gospel itself is our order of worship. We are to begin where the gospel begins, and we are to end where the gospel ends, and we are to track along with the gospel at every point in between. Gathering tells God's story, and I want you to see that in an example from the worship of heaven. But I don't just want you to see it. I want you to hear it. I want you to smell it. I want you to feel it. I want you to experience it 
through the life of this man, Isaiah, who writes it in such a way as to draw you in in all of your senses that you might experience it. In Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, Isaiah writes this. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Two really big statements. In the year of King Uzziah's death, and then I saw the Lord. I think that both are fairly significant. But he's not just coming to us and he's telling us when. He's not saying, okay, I saw the Lord and here's when. It was in the year of King Uzziah's death. And everybody goes, okay, cool. Yeah, I remember when that was. That was such and such a year. And that's when it happened. No. He's telling you what's going on in his heart, in his mind, in his life, and in the life of his nation when he sees the Lord. Uzziah was possibly, arguably, the greatest king since King Solomon. Uzziah reigned on the throne of the southern kingdom of Israel, this nation called Judah, for 52 years. Uzziah was the only king that Isaiah the prophet had ever known for the entirety of his life. Life was good when King Uzziah was in charge. There was peace. There was prosperity. There was, and we know the value of this right now, a really great economy. And perhaps even more importantly, he was a great military king. So he expanded the territories. He strengthened the borders. And I say perhaps more importantly because right around the end of his life, the Assyrian Empire, the arch enemies of Israel to the north, if you will, was gathering in strength. And it was expanding its territories. And it was slowly and steadily marching toward Jerusalem. The idea being that if ever there was a time that they needed Uzziah, this was it. And now he's gone. And so it's with that on his heart that Isaiah comes to the temple And he says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. And here's the thing, he wants you to see the Lord too. So now he begins to describe him. And notice what he says and doesn't say. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. See, Isaiah goes to the temple, very well familiar with the throne of Uzziah. He thinks he knows what a throne looks like. And then he sees the real throne. This man, Isaiah, had been in the courts of Uzziah, the king. He thought he knew lofty and exalted. And then his lofty and exalted definition got amped up a bit. He goes to the temple thinking that the king is dead and all is uncertain. And he shows up and realizes that the real king is very much alive and he's not all that unsettled. It's kind of helpful, isn't it? The pattern of the gospel in the heart of every believer, everyone who has come to faith in Christ, number one, is at some point in our life, we finally see God for who He really is. Not for whom somebody has told us that He is, not for whom we've created Him to be, this mild, passive God who loves everybody, so why worry? We see the King And that changes everything. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's the king, you see, and he's lofty and exalted. And then he says, with the train of his robe filling the temple, which strikes me as a little odd, and I'll tell you why. Isaiah's looking at the king on the throne who is God, right? He sees his eyes, his ears, his hair, his face, his mouth, his hands, his feet, his tra- you know, the, the trunk, if you will, of his body. There are all of these things that he sees. He says nothing about any of them. He only speaks of his robe. That's odd to me. 
The robe of the great king represents his majesty. And I think Isaiah is telling us something about when you see God. You see, what you walk away impressed with is not his eyes or his ears or his nose or his hair or his mouth or his teeth or his hands or his feet. You are so blown away by his majesty that you can't speak of anything else. It's like it's all you've seen. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and what captured me was his majesty with the train of his robe filling the temple. There was nowhere in the temple that was not full of the majesty of the Lord. And then he says, seraphim, it's an angel. It means literally burning ones, plural. These fiery angels, which speak of God's holiness, stood above him, each having six wings, and with two, he covered his face, unwilling to look upon the blazing holiness of this great king. And with two, he covered his feet. It really refers to the lower parts of the body. He took two, and he just enfolded them over his legs and his feet, unwilling to reveal his creatureliness in the presence of this great king, though he is perfect. And with two, he flew, ever ready to carry out the commands of the king. And get this, one called out to another. Do you hear that? And what do they call out? One says, holy, another says, holy, another says, holy, another says, holy. They're proclaiming the holiness of the God over and over and over and over again. Holy, 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 unison the, the, is the Lord God of hosts, right? The whole earth is full of His glory. And then when they got to the end of that, what do you think they said? They said, holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then when they got to the, the end of that, what do you think they said? They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then when they got to the end of that, what do you think they said? You know, it's interesting. When you fast forward 800 years, 800 years to the book of Revelation, John gives us an almost identical vision of the throne room of God. And guess what the six-winged creatures are proclaiming? No doubt antiphonally, one calling out to the other, because it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Folks, that's what you call a repetitive praise chorus, isn't it? I want to pause, and I want to say this as graciously as I can, but I want to say it once. When you and I weary of singing of the attributes of God, when we take a genre of music that our souls, as we'll talk about in a minute, desperately need and disregard it as being overly repetitive, we have a quarrel with the worship of heaven. That's a difficult quarrel to win. I would challenge you to read through the Psalms and get to Psalm 136. Please don't miss that one. It's 26 verses. You know what the refrain in every verse, every verse, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give praise to the God of God for His loving kindness is everlasting, for He is good for His loving kindness is everlasting. Next great statement about God for His loving kindness is 
for his loving kindness is, for his loving kindness is, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Wow. When we weary of singing of the attributes of God, the problem isn't with the song. The problem is with us. Gathering is about God, but it also tells his story and the pattern of the gospel, which the pattern of worship is to follow. It defines our order of worship, begins with a proper view of God. And so Isaiah tells us, Seraphim stood above this great majestic king, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they rock that place night and day with that anthem of praise of which God never wearies. And he says, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out the whole place, literally trembled in the proclamation of the holiness of God while the temple was being filled with smoke is the idea. It's ever being more and more so filled, which speaks of God's presence. And then having seen God for who he really is, Isaiah has something to say, and it's really the next step in the progress of the gospel in the heart of every believer, of everyone who has come to faith in Christ. You see God, and then you see you. And everything's a little bit different, isn't it? There, too, there's a recalibration of things. I mean, you got to think about this guy, Isaiah, for a minute, because Isaiah is a pretty holy guy. I think we'd all have to agree with that. He wrote a book of the Bible. You might have heard of it. It's called the book of Isaiah. It's not a trick question. I haven't written a book of the Bible. I don't know about you guys. He's a prophet of the Lord. He's called to deliver the oracles of God. He is the voice of God to the people of God. This is an extraordinary man. By everyone's account, he's good. Maybe even by his own account. But he comes into the presence of God, step one, and what happens next? He sees himself for who he really is, and the prophet of the Lord who is called to deliver the oracles of God, he speaks for God, right? Now, speaking for God says something about himself. He says, woe to me, for I am ruined. Prophets of the Lord were called to deliver the oracles of God, and there were two kinds. There were oracles of weal, which is a weird name, I know, just go with me on it. It means oracles of blessing. And then there were oracles of woe, oracles of cursing. He sees God for who he really is, and then he sees himself for who he really is, and he proclaims a prophetic curse upon himself, and then he tells us why he's done it. Then I said, woe to me, for I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. He doesn't need a napkin. The lips are connected to the heart. That's the whole idea. From out of the heart, the mouth speaks. They're emblematic of his heart. He starts looking at some of the things he's said. It's the first thing that jumps out at him. It's the first thing that jumps out at me, too. Woe to me, for I am ruined. It means I'm disintegrating. Luther translated it, I am dissolving. I'm coming apart in the presence of the holiness of God. I cannot stand here. 
He says, woe to me, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I had no idea how bad off we all were until right now, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The pattern of the gospel in the heart of man begins with a proper view of God. And then we see ourselves and what do we do? We cry out that we are sinful. We confess what we all of a sudden have seen clearly, and that is that we are sinners and we are absolutely incapable of doing anything to help ourselves out of this quandary. But the great thing, and this is the gospel too, is that when we do that, God swoops in. And He rescues us. When we call out to Him for rescue through faith in the sacrifice, that's a key idea in all of this, of the life of Christ and specifically of His blood. You see, Isaiah calls out, I'm undone, man. And then it says, then one of the seraphim, one of these burning angels, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. The altar speaks of sacrifice, where the blood is spilt that covers over sin. It's a bloody coal. And with that bloody coal, he says, he touched my mouth and then proclaimed to me forgiven. It's by the blood that we are washed and made clean and assured because we need that assurance. We're in a crisis. Assured that we're forgiven. It's phenomenal. The angel said, Behold, this has touched your lips, representing your heart, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So then, having been forgiven, what happens next in the pattern of the progress of the gospel? Because we have proper view of God, we have confession of sin, we have what? Assurance of our forgiveness, and now what? It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, I don't know. Where are you going to send somebody, whoever it is that volunteers for this deal? How long is it going to take? Where are we going to go? I mean, you know, what are the benefits involved in this? What's in it for me? It's none of those things. He's not thinking of any of those things. We ought not to think of any of those things either, quite frankly. He just says, okay, here am I. Send me, because they had reached that point in the progress of the gospel in the heart of the believer where having received the assurance of our forgiveness, we recognize that we and all that we are and all that we have and all that we own belong 100% to this God who has purchased us with the lifeblood of His Son. And He says, take me. I'm yours. We've reached the offering. Offerings of praise from our mouths and offering, in this context of worship, of dollars from our lives. Dollars represent life in many ways. When the offering basket comes by, you know, it's often the most awkward moment in the whole service. And it's like, what is that all about? That's you and I tangibly saying, hey, God, I'm going to give you 10% of this in recognition of the fact that you own all of this. And that I trust in you for my security, and that I trust in you, you see, and not this, and that you are my treasure and not this. It's thanksgiving, it's worship. So, anyway, they get to the offering, you know, and Isaiah looks around and he sees the deacons at either end of the aisle, you know, at the end of his row. He's trapped. 
Here comes the basket. Somebody puts in a few bucks. Somebody puts in a check. Somebody puts in a prayer request. Somebody puts in nothing. It gets to him, and he says, boys, you need a bigger basket than this because I'm going to put my whole self in this thing. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. And what happens next? Well, for the sake of time, what happens next is he receives instruction from the Lord. God says, all right, you've given yourself to me. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how you can grow in the grace by which I have saved you. Having received the instruction from the Lord, he receives a charge from the Lord. Go out and do it and go with my blessing, with my benediction. It's a familiar word within the context of worship, isn't it? It's interesting, you know, Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. He's commissioning, right? And I will be with you. Wow. That's a blessing. Even to the end of the age. So that's the pattern of the progress of the gospel in the heart of the believer. It's the pattern also for the worship of heaven. And we find that pattern here. We find it in parts in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. We find it in parts in Deuteronomy. We find it in Solomon's dedication of the temple. We find it in parts in the temple worship of Israel in the Old Testament. We find bits and pieces and sometimes whole layouts of it in the New Testament as well. As you look systematically at the Scripture, which the church has done for ages, and say, how does God want us to worship, it starts coming together around the gospel. And it kind of makes sense, isn't it? I mean, it's by the gospel that we come to God. It's by the gospel that we please our God. It's by the gospel that we worship our God. And when you do a historical survey of the prevailing worship patterns of the church for the last 2,000 years you find consensus built around this pattern. It's interesting. And whether you realize it or not, for the last three or four months, it's what we've been doing here. So let me give you the pattern. It begins, number one, with adoration. It's kind of the church's word, but it's that way of saying, hey, we're coming into the presence of God and we need to see this God. We gain a proper view of God right on the front end of the service, which then causes me to, uh uh-oh, see myself. So next step, confession, where I cry out, you know what? Woe to me because I'm ruined. And as I've gathered in worship again today and now seen God again, I've come face to face with that again. Then it's assurance, having confessed our faith, found forgiveness through the blood of Christ who is the sacrifice that takes away all of our sin. We receive the assurance that our hearts desperately need Because the presence of God, apart from forgiveness, is traumatic. And then there is thanksgiving. There is an expression of the praise of our lips. And there is an offering in which we say, in you I trust, in you I treasure. And I recognize with this that all of it, not just this, is yours. There's petition and intercession as we then cry out to the Lord for more grace, realizing that the same grace by which we are saved is the grace that we need also to now live. And then we sit under His instruction and we receive the instruction of His Word as we learn how to live for Him and how to grow in the grace that has saved us. Then it's charge, it's blessing, it's go live in light of what we've talked about and go as my favored ones. Go with the presence of my Spirit. 
It's the benediction of the Lord. Gathering tells God's story. It follows the pattern of the progress of the gospel in the heart of the believers. And here's the thing. Some weeks our adoration, okay, are going to be in a song that we sang, like today. That song held up the greatness of God, and then it actually said, we adore you, we adore you, Lord of all the earth. But sometimes it'll be a psalm. Sometimes it'll be a creed. Sometimes it'll be a statement of a pastor who gets up and says, I don't know if you know this, but the God that we worship is really, really big and really, really holy. And let me give you 30 seconds on why you should stand in awe of Him. We're not going to do it the same way each week. But the point is that adoration will be there. Some weeks our confession will come in the form of, you know, silently sitting down and confessing quietly our sins to the Lord just one-on-one. Sometimes we'll read a confession in unison. You might have noticed we've been doing these things. Sometimes, like last week, Matt will get up and say, hey, listen, I just want you to take this confession in. I want you to read it along with me. I want you to enact or interact with it in your heart and make it yours and own it, and he reads it for us. Other times we will sing a song Orion will sing a song like he did today. It's based on Psalm 51. It was a psalm of confession. Did you hear the song? And then what did we sing? Jesus paid it all. What is that? That's the assurance of our forgiveness, isn't it? Sometimes that'll be a Scripture reading. But many times we'll sing it. The idea being that the gospel itself gives us the order of worship, which we then fill in and complete with creativity, creeds and prayers and statements and readings, and, of course, with music. So much of what is communicated in worship here and everywhere else is communicated through, worship, or through music. Music, really and truly, is a higher form of speech. It goes places in the hearts and in the souls of people that oftentimes the spoken word can't reach. It's profoundly important. And it is also, at the same time, the single most controversial topic in related to worship that there possibly is, isn't it? Why? because we all have our opinions. I've got mine. Don't you? So some like traditional music and some like contemporary music, and if some here were planning the worship service, it would always all be all upbeat music. If some were planning the worship service, it would always all be kind of, you know, contemplative and and relaxed. It would be, you know, acoustic set versus the big band, or it would be no band, and it would be piano and organ, or it would be, it's all of these different kinds of music, all of these different kinds of sounds, all of these different kinds of songs. Hey, listen, some people actually like to sing the same thing over and over again. The rest of us get a rash. I know that. I know that. And we've canceled songs for being overly repetitive or just said, not going to do that one. But I want you to understand that's an accommodation to our weakness. That's not to our credit. God doesn't weary of it. And gathering is about Him. So the question that I, I guess I'm crazy enough to ask, particularly since, honestly, in this church, nobody's even asking this question at least not to me. It's really like, I know it's controversial, but like I said last week, you know, we really don't get much in terms of complaints or anything. So 
I just feel like it needs to be addressed if we're going to talk about gathering. And the question is, what kind of music should we do? And the answer that I'm going to give you is all of it. We should do it all. And here's the thing, and you're really going to have to stay with me, okay? The person who has best helped me to see this, and it's going to be a little bit shocking, so hear me out, is Aristotle. Seriously, and I know that he's a pagan philosopher. I know he lived four centuries or so before Jesus. I know he knows nothing of Christ or the gospel. I know that he was unfamiliar entirely in all likelihood with Hebrew poetry and with the Hebrew Old Testament. I get all of that, but I also get because I've studied him pretty carefully that God gave this man great insight into the way that our souls are constructed and fed. And I know also that what he says in this regard is validated by the Bible, and I'll explain in a second. But one of the quests of Aristotle was to understand the human soul. And so one of the ways that he set about doing that is he gathered up all of the enduring poetry and all of the enduring literature, all of the stories and the poems that get passed down from generation to generation to generation and for a reason. Because they move the heart of man. They stir our souls. They're profound in every generation. And his working assumption, and I think he's right, is that in studying this, I'm going to come to understand something of the construct of the soul of humanity, of every person, not just of one, it's universal. And so he studied all of this literature and he recognized that they broke down into four basic categories, categories that you've heard, and categories that he argues, and I think he's right, correspond to four different aspects of our soul. There is the epic... You've heard of that, the lyric, the tragic, and the comic. The epic is that which is conquering. The epic is big and mighty and strong. The epic, biblically speaking, because you find all of these in the Bible, which should say something. The epic is the creation story where God creates everything and then you see the earth and it's, it's in the state of darkness and death and chaos and emptiness and God in the space of six days does what? He introduces light and life. He orders the chaos. He gives form to that which is formless. He fills that which is empty. He conquers and subdues it. He makes it his own and he says to you in the process that he can do that for you too. That's epic. There's the lyric. It's the poetic. It's the romantic. It's the one that almost none of us guys spend any time in, but we all need to. It's the Song of Solomon. Most of the men here have not read the Song of Solomon. It will make you blush at times. Then there's the tragic. It's the realm of suffering. It's the realm of loss. It's the fall of man, biblically speaking. Everything lost, all of it in a day. It's classic, tragic literature. And then there's the comic, which doesn't, by the way, mean that it's funny. I know that that's what we think. It's a comedy, therefore it's funny. No, it has a ridiculous element to it. What's ridiculous is that what's so unexpected actually occurs. This person who you'd never thought could actually do something happens. It's the realm of redemption. It's the realm of the great reversal. It's the ugly duckling who unbelievably, shockingly, contrary to every expectation, becomes the beautiful swan. It's Cinderella who actually goes to the ball. It is a crucified and thus in the minds of the first century Jews, including his own followers, a failed Messiah who three days later rises from the dead and through his death brings life. That's comedy. Classically speaking. 
And what I find interesting about this is you find this not only in the narrative of the Bible, but you find each of these categories in the Psalms. Now, the Psalms is the hymnal of Israel. The Psalms are the inspired word of the living God. These are the songs that God truly inspired. No one can argue with that. So then what does that tell you? It tells you that you need to sing all of these categories. We don't come to the Psalms and go, you know what? I'm just going to focus on the lament Psalms and I'm not ever going to read any of the rest of this stuff. If we did that, that we would do that to the detriment of our own soul, to the imbalance of our own hearts. No, no, we deal with those, and we deal with the praise, and we deal with all of the categories of the Psalms in which you find the epic, the lyric, the tragic, and the comic. We need the epic, guys, because we are not going to go out and do great things for the kingdom of God unless our God is really, really big, subduing, conquering. We need to feed that aspect of our soul if we're going to see God rightly and live rightly. We need the lyric if we're ever going to be generous. And this is just one example, okay? But seriously, think about that for a minute. We need to have a God with whom we are intimate, with whom we are in love. He belongs to us. We belong to Him. We are in an un, a union that cannot be disconnected. All that we have is His. All that He has is ours. That understanding frees us to be generous with everything and with everyone. But we won't be if we neglect that part of our soul. We need the tragic because without it, we will not be able to commiserate. We will not be able to interact. We will not be able to relate to people who are suffering. And we won't be very humble because we'll be pretty out of touch with our own tragic depravity as well. And we need the comic or we will be neither loving nor forgiving. We need to know that the ugly duckling really can become the beautiful swan, that Cinderella actually gets to go to the ball, and that Jesus Christ can take a person who is an enemy and make that person his friend or your friend. Radical transformation. We need to believe in that. We need to feed that in our own hearts and in our own souls. And so we need traditional music. Why? Because primarily, traditional music is epic. It's a great big God. But we need co contemporary music as well, at least as we define contemporary. Why? Because it's lyric. Because it's comic. Because it's tragic. It deals with the human condition. It holds forth the joy of intimate connection with the Lord. It speaks of radical transformation. One without the other is imbalanced in both directions. You know, as I thought about that this week, I, I, it was interesting to me. The Israel of old knew nothing of the distinction between traditional and contemporary. They would be going, what are you talking about? They wouldn't get it at all. You know why? Because the Psalms were written over the period of about a thousand years. That's a lot longer than the whole traditional contemporary argument, at least that I'm aware of, has been going on. It may feel like a thousand years, but think about what that means. What that means is for a thousand years, they took every new song that God had truly inspired and blessed them with, and they added it to their hymnal, and they sang it. And think about this also. They kept singing the old ones. They continued to sing the Psalm of Moses, Psalm 90, the oldest in the Psalter. 
And it's interesting, I think, also to know that 230 years or so ago, John Newton, who had grown weary of the traditional music of the Anglican church, wrote a new song, which was largely despised because it was new. We sang it last week. It's Amazing Grace. I don't know. I think it has some value. How ironic that we now call it traditional. How many of the songs that we call contemporary today is somebody else going to call traditional someday down the road and go, no, you, we can't deviate from the... We need it all. That's the idea. Let us not despise the music that God has given us for the worship of the Lord, either because of its, either because it's too young or it's too old. As long as people are being saved, as long as the plan of redemption is going forward, there will be new music unto the Lord. And that's a good thing. That's a glorious thing. And when we sing the traditional hymns, that's a glorious thing. As we stand generation to generation to generation to generation alongside those who have gone before us, professing the same faith, singing the same hymn. So anyway, gathering is about God. It's not about you and I. And it tells his story. It follows the pattern of the progress of the gospel in the life of the believer. And the walk-away question, I think, today is, first of all, hey, God, what did you think of my worship today? Yeah, I know I was a little off-key, but I was rocking it today. And what does this mean for me? How does this affect the way that I gather? How does this impact the way that I worship? How does this transform my views on my approach to the Lord and the way I give myself to Him in gathering? So I'll leave you guys to interact with that. I've had to do it all week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time. Uh, Lord, we do thank You for the gifts that You've given to us by which to serve You one gift being music. Lord, we thank You for the gift of Your gospel, God, the gift of Your Son. We thank You for Your Word, which teaches us, which leads us, which illuminates our hearts and minds, which invites us to new vistas of imagination. We thank You for the wisdom that You have blessed us with in Your Son, in Your Word. We pray, God, that we might employ all of these things to your glory. I ask, Lord, that as we continue this conversation, that you will continue to speak by your Spirit to us. God, that you would give us wisdom, that you would recalibrate our understanding of what we do when we gather, of who we gather for, and Lord, of the way that you have blessed us and the way that you minister and feed our own souls even in unexpected ways. I pray that you would give us your grace one toward another and toward the world as we move out from here. Speak to us, Lord. Let us know what you would have us to say and to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.